All right, good afternoon. My name is Alan Meese. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Law and Markets here at the Law School. Uh, the Center, along with the Federal Society and the Business Law Society, are sponsoring uh, today's event. We are very fortunate to have with us today Professor Julia Mahoney, who is the John S. Battle Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Professor Mahoney is a graduate of Barnard College and Yale Law School. After graduating from Yale, she practiced law at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, and then joined the faculty at the university. At UVA, she is affiliated with several academic centers, including the Center for the Public Law and Political Economy, Center for Public Policy and Regulation, and the Center for Intellectual Property. Her research and teaching range over a wide variety of topics, although I think it's safe to say that all of them have some connection to political economy and markets. These topics include, and this is a non-exclusive list, the law of takings in eminent domain, nonprofit organizations, public debt and monetary policy, sustainability and land conservation, feminism and free markets, financial regulation, and markets and organ transplantation. And I'm sure I've left something out. Right? Um, today she'll be addressing a topic that is hotly debated in both political and academic circles, uh, namely uh, the role of the government, if any, in ensuring that corporations uh, make mandatory disclosures on topics related to uh, the environment, social matters, and matters of their governance. So. The format will be about 25, 30 minutes, um, and then, and then questions, questions from all of you afterwards. Questions, um, yeah, so please uh, think of questions um, during her lecture. Afterwards, uh, there is a reception in the Penny Commons, where I'm told there will be cheese, crackers, and at my request, several dozen cookies. Um, <laughs> so please join me in welcoming Professor Mike. Thank you all. I'm very excited to be here. And it's a great honor to be invited back to your Center for Law and Markets. The focus of my presentation today is Environmental, Social, and Governance, ESG, and the regulation of securities markets. In brief, I'll examine some pressing issues relating to ESG. My chief topic will be the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposed climate disclosure rule, which imposes extensive and mandatory climate-related disclosure obligations on public companies, so-called reporting companies. And I'll also discuss some recent developments concerning this SEC's oversight of so-called ESG funds, that is, investment vehicles that market themselves to investors as promoting environmental, social, and governance goals. I'll also say a little bit about the ongoing controversy, which is actually heating up lately, over the Department of Labor's so-called ESG rule, addressing the permissible role of ESG considerations in decisions by fiduciaries of retirement plans covered by ERISA. That means, the, of course, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And wrap up with a few observations about the fierce politicization of ESG issues and where things might be headed in the near to medium term future. My plan is to speak, as Professor Mee said, for roughly 25 minutes. I emphasize I do want to allow time for comments, questions, and discussions. Politicians, investors, policy experts, and academics have long debated the merits of socially motivated investing and corporate management. In recent years, these debates have intensified as trillions of dollars have flowed into so-called ESG investment funds, and corporate officers and directors have come under pressure to take ESG factors into consideration when making corporate decisions. 
The definition of ESG, however, is nebulous. So we have the spectacle of a lot of fights over a term that cannot be defined with crispness or even much, frankly, specificity. The E stands for environment, which can denote anything, frankly, that might affect our planet or even come to think of it outer space. S is for social. Social factors, as described by S&P Global, are, quote, primarily those that will arise in the relations between a company or other institution and people or institutions outside of it. So social factors are, like the environmental factors, very broad. And finally, the G refers to the internal operations of firms, including the makeup of boards of directors. It is the G in ESG that has served as the impetus for board diversity narratives, a number of which have gotten um, a great deal of publicity recently. Now, ESG's indeterminacy may help account for its fast spread, because it is something that, if not all things to all people, at least is a lot of things to a lot of people. And it sounds good that in making decisions, corporate fiduciaries should take into account not just short-term interests, but should actually think about making a better world. And that shareholders can, as part of their um, part of their, their exerting, as part of exerting their power as shareholders, can actually put pressure on and will make a better world if they put pressure on officers and directors of corporations to take into account ESG factors. At least on first impression, it's very, very, very appealing for a lot of people. Some argue that ESG is the wave of the future. Among them are my distinguished colleagues, Mikhail Barzuza and Quinn Curtis, who argue that, quote, the overwhelming force driving ESG is the economic rise of millennials. Raised in the shadow of the threat of climate change, they write, millennials who came of age during the 2008 global financial crisis are determined to integrate their social values into their economic life as employees, customers, and, yes, investors. Others, including most famously Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla and Twitter, disagree. ESG is the devil, Musk tweeted in November 2022. And in January of this year, Musk tweeted that the S in ESG stands for satanic. Other ESG skeptics, including, I hope, myself, have taken a more measured tone. They point to the dangers that ESG principles may serve as a kind of smokescreen for unfaithful fiduciaries. That is, fiduciaries may, instead of looking after the interests of those whose interests they are supposed to be looking after, in the case of, say, a fiduciary of a pension fund, making sure that retirees have adequate money for retirement or when retirement comes along and so forth, if, say, running Exxon um, will, um, will prioritize their own uh, political and ideological preferences at the expense of the welfare and well-being of those whose interests they have been charged with protecting. The vagueness of ESG, I and others have argued, means that one can end up in a situation that has real peril. Now, the complexities of ESG are on full display in the Security and Exchange Commission's proposed climate disclosure rule. Released in March 2022, 
the proposed rule, in the words of the SEC's own press release, would require reporting companies to include certain climate-related disclosures in their registration statements and periodic reports, including information about climate-related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on their business results of operations or financial condition, and certain climate-related financial statement metrics in a note to their audited financial statements. The required information about climate-related risks would also include disclosure of a registrant's greenhouse gas emissions, which have become a commonly used metric to assess a registrant's exposure to such risks. This proposed rule elicited criticism. A number of commentators, including me, argued that the proposed thought rule appears to be beyond the authority of the SEC. Since its founding in 1934, the SEC has maintained a regulatory framework centered on the protection of ordinary investors, in large measure by requiring the disclosure of material risks to the business of companies that have publicly traded securities. So in a nutshell, their focus is on risks to the companies. And information is considered material if a reasonable investor would consider it important in deciding and making investment decisions. This disclosure system attempts to put large and small investors on an equal or a more nearly equal informational footing. And, or so the justification is, thereby promotes public trust that the financial markets are fair rather than rigged in favor of market professionals and the politically powerful. ESG mandates, like the one contained in the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rule, I would argue anyway, risk eroding that trust. Why? Because the proposed rule requires the disclosure of a massive amount of information, the disclosure of which is not designed to protect and further the interests of the so-called Main Street investors. Indeed, much of the information required to be disclosed is going to be wholly immaterial to ordinary investors because the information to be disclosed is not about the effects of the climate on regulated companies. Rather, a lot of the information that is to be disclosed under this proposed, not yet final, but proposed climate disclosure rule is information about the effect of the regulated companies on the climate. That is a crucial difference. It may be that the EPA or some other organization would like that information. What kind of impact are company operations having on the climate? But when it comes to investment decisions, when it comes to how you will deploy your savings, that information about the effect of the company on the climate is not obviously the sort of thing that investors will change their investment decisions based on. So if this is not information that is clearly useful to investment decisions of the so-called Main Street investors, I say use that phrase to distinguish them from the so-called Wall Street investors, maybe we should call them the elite investors, who often do have, for various reasons, very strong commitments to certain climate policies, certain policies respecting climate change. Um, if, it, if this proposed rule 
that requires so much disclosure of climate-related information. If it's not something that would be clearly relevant for small investors, smaller investors, then what purpose would it serve? In my judgment, and then 21 other professors of law and finance who joined me in two comment letters to the SEC on the proposed rule, the clear purpose and certain effect of the disclosures required by the proposed rule is to give third parties, including leading environmental advocacy groups, information for their use in efforts to reduce emissions by companies subject to the rule, regardless of the effect on investors. Such organizations will likely use the required disclosures about the company's plans to transition from carbon energy dependence and climate-related targets and goals to identify companies that are not doing all that certain groups think they ought to be doing when it comes to combating climate change. And that will then allow advocacy groups to pressure companies to change their operations and to change their operations in ways not required by current environmental laws and regulations. There will also be pressure on institutional investors to support these changes. This is, it is frankly no secret that this is how things would be likely to unfold. In some, the proposed climate disclosure looks to me and a number of others like an attempt to achieve indirectly what cannot right now be achieved directly through ordinary political processes. Not to say that there should not be perhaps more regulation in the area of climate change, but that decision is not done, that measure is not to be undertaken by the SEC pursuant to statutes that are meant to ensure the trust of ordinary investors in the financial markets. Those decisions are to be taken by Congress, which will pass statutes, perhaps amend the major environmental statutes, or maybe even maybe even pass new ones, and by the regulatory agencies that have expertise in climate matters. Most importantly, of course, the Environmental Protection Agency. The Environmental Protection Agency has broad, although not, of course, unlimited regular authority pursuant to the environmental statutes, which have given the, e the EPA its regulatory authority. The SEC is not an environmental regulatory body. So unable to persuade Congress to legislate to implement their environmental agenda, unable to persuade the EPA to promulgate rules, those who favor particular climate policies have turned to the SEC for indirect action. And the problem, the biggest problem with this approach, at least as I see it, is that it is completely unaligned with the SEC's stated mission under the law. The SEC is an independent agency charged with investor protection and the maintenance of fair and orderly and efficient markets. The SEC has neither the political expertise or the expertise nor the political accountability to pursue climate and other policy goals. So climate goals, diversity goals, all the ESG goals are ones that are not within the SEC's expertise and the SEC is an, as an independent agency doesn't have the political accountability of Congress. As SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce put it in a March 2022 statement, the proposed rule will not bring consistency, comparability, and reliability to company climate disclosures. 
It will, however, risk undermining the existing regulatory framework that for many decades has undergirded consistent, comparable, and reliable company disclosures. Investors, including investors who are saving for retirement, said Commissioner Peirce, and need to earn real financial, not just psychic, returns on their money, will likely suffer as companies suffer from the diversion of attention from financial to climate objectives. Former SEC Chair Richard Breeden, along with four former SEC commissioners, have voiced arguments along the same lines, along, along roughly the same lines, stating that a rule requiring the disclosure of vast quantities of immaterial information exceeds the authority delegated to the SEC by Congress. Now, not everyone agrees with me and the other signatories to the two letters that I referred to, and there, and, or not, and there are many who have argued that this proposed climate rule is, in fact, uh, a perfectly uh, valid exercise of the SEC's rulemaking authority, that it falls well within the SEC's rulemaking authority, surveying the major provisions of the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. A group of 30 professors emphasizes Congress's broad delegation to the SEC of the power to determine what disclosure is necessary or appropriate in the public interest or for the protection of investors or to promote fair dealing in securities <laughs> traded on U.S. markets, in the U.S. capital markets. These 30 professors and other supporters of the proposed climate disclosure rule also argue that the information would be helpful to investors as evidenced by the fact that some investors have asked for the SEC to act. These investors tend to be, though, the large asset managers. And it is here where I think things get especially tricky, because there is the concern that the ideological commitments of the more powerful investors will possibly have a detrimental effect on the investment returns of the less powerful investors. That is exactly the sort of thing that the SEC has tried, with a lot of success, not perfect success, but with a lot of success, to ward off. Um, in the decades, close to a century now, of its existence. So uh, the one response to this, investors are asking for this information, is yes, some large asset managers are, but there's no sign that ordinary investors have been asking much for this, um, for this, uh, uh, for this information. Now, what is next for this particular, for the SEC, um, for the SEC rule? What will come? Last June, the United States Supreme Court handed down West Virginia v. EPA, a decision that has potentially far-reaching implications for the administrative state in general and for the SEC's climate disclosure rule in particular. By a vote of 6 to 3, with Chief Justice Roberts writing the majority opinion for the court, West Virginia v. EPA held that the Environmental Protection Agency lacks authority under the Clean Air Act to adopt its Clean Power Plan. Invoking the major questions doctrine, the Supreme Court said, the majority of the Supreme Court said, where the statute at issue is one that confers authority upon an administrative agency, that inquiry must be shaped, at least in some measure, by the nature of the question presented, whether Congress, in fact, meant to confer the power the agency has asserted. The ramifications for the SEC's climate disclosure rule are clear. The EPA promulgated a rule, Clean Power Plan, 
that was pretty much at the frontier of its regulatory authority. The Supreme Court said it went beyond the regulatory authority granted to EPA. Similar arguments have been made with respect to the SEC's authority under the major securities laws and whether or not that authority extends to the mandatory climate disclosures. The Supreme Court went on to state that in the ordinary case, the context has no great effect on the appropriate analysis, but nevertheless, our precedent teaches that there are extraordinary cases that call for a different approach, cases in which the history and the breadth of the authority asserted by an agency and, keywords, the economic and political significance of that assertion provide a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. So, has West Virginia v. EPA, together with strong criticisms of the proposed rule, shifted the regulatory landscape with respect to the climate disclosure proposed rule? Perhaps. In early February 2023, both the Wall Street Journal and Politico reported that the SEC is seriously weighing a scale back of its proposed climate disclosure rule, and that although there will be a final rule requiring some climate dis climate-related disclosures in firms' financial statements. These requirements may be dialed back, perhaps by raising the threshold at which companies must report their climate costs. In addition, so-called Scope 3 emissions disclosure requirements, which oblige some firms to disclose upstream emissions generated by the production of the things they buy and downstream emissions from the use of what they sell, may be weakened or even eliminated altogether. We will see. We do not know what the SEC will choose to do. These news stories were not surprisingly followed by concerns expressed by prominent members of Congress, including a letter from, among others, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who wrote to SEC Chair Gary Gensler last month to urge the SEC to follow through on a strong climate disclosure rule without delay. And whatever the SEC does, unless it abandons the climate disclosure rule altogether, we expect there will be core challenges, and West Virginia, the language of West Virginia the EPA that I just quoted, obviously uh, gives uh, considerable um, uh, ammunition for any court challenge, but that is not to say that a challenge that argues that the SEC has exceeded its authority uh, would necessarily succeed. Now, in addition to the climate disclosure rule, the SEC has of late been focused on the issue of misleading or flat-out false ESG claims. Many investment funds are, have been accused of not following through with representations that by investing one's money in a particular fund, that one will do good and as well as get some financial returns. Touting a product as being ESG is good for business, said SEC Commissioner Mark Uyeda in a speech he gave this past January. I think he is, um, the fact that so much money has poured into ESG investment vehicles uh, is powerful evidence of exactly that. However, because it is hard to ascertain exactly what ESG means, it's really hard to figure out often whether investors are being misled or not. So what can the SEC do? This is really, really, really hard. I mean, on the one hand, one might shrug and say, oh, it's just virtue signaling. Everyone knows that. They're not really going to follow through. You're going to call something an ESG fund. It's going to have a lot of investments that sound good. Investors can then put their money in there and feel good. But this is just another version of what's been called warm glow altruism. That is, a lot of donors to charitable causes realize the benefit when they donate. 
they feel good. And they don't follow up necessarily. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that an awful lot of donors to an awful lot of charitable causes really don't follow up much at all to make sure that there's actual good being delivered. We have perhaps a similar problem with ESG. The SEC has proposed amendments to the Investment Company Act's so-called names rule, name which will impose requirements on funds that include particular terms such as ESG or green in their names. And such funds would have to invest at least 80% of their money in investments that correspond to the term that's used in the name of the fund. But again, with it being so difficult to define ESG and so forth, eh, that's going to be really, really hard uh, to enforce if this, proposal, if this proposal goes through. So the SEC may well be leaning toward simply taking occasional enforcement actions. If the name, if the representations, if the name of a fund, if the representations made um, with respect to the fund is such that uh, there is something outrageous going on, the SEC may act. It may say that there has been, the SEC has broad authority to address securities fraud very broadly defined. Uh, recently, the SEC, this happened at the end of October, announced a $4 million settlement with Goldman Sachs because Goldman Sachs had failed to follow Goldman Sachs' own ESG policies and procedures when choosing investments for two mutual funds that were being marketed as greenish or ESG investments. So that may be how the SEC uh, uh, deals with, with this. Finally, I wanted to say a few words about the recent Department of Labor rule. Uh, this is something that Congress actually passed, but the House and the Senate passed uh, resolutions to override, and President Biden vetoed uh, this, uh, this effort to override the rule. And there's a lot of disagreement about the so-called ESG rule promulgated by the Department of Labor and what it does. Some characterize the so-called ESG rule as allowing for the consideration of certain ESG factors that are, um, that are financially relevant uh, to an investment's risk-return analysis. That is, fiduciaries of, of pension funds, those, those funds covered by ERISA, can, uh, can take those into account. Um, others say, though, that uh, in effect, uh, that's, that's a bit of an overstatement, uh, that really what this rule has done uh, is to be uh, neutral on what financial factors, including ESG factors, a planned fiduciary may consider. There's no mandate to consider the economic effects of climate change or other ESG factors when evaluating and selecting investments for these ERISA plans. ESG factors will be treated no differently from other relevant investment factors, um, but regardless of who has the, uh, the, the better characterization of the rule, uh, there are certainly um, at least two lawsuits um, brewing. Finally, a few words, because I thought I would stop after 25 minutes. I do want to hear from all of you. A few words about why if ESG, why if definitions of ESG are so impossible to fix with specificity, why are there huge fights about it? Is this just another proxy in the culture wars that somehow ESG has become something that is considered dangerous or, or somehow bad? Uh, I think that part of the answer lies in the fact that it is so very difficult to coordinate altruistic behavior, and that the danger that those who seek to, for example, invest, um, and who want to pursue not just financial returns, but also want to realize other objectives, charitable or political, there is such a danger that they might get, in effect, fleeced. 
because although the concept that investors might consent to a risk of lower returns in ESG investing, okay, I'll take a slightly less healthy return on my retirement funds in exchange for doing something good for the planet, in exchange for helping to ensure that there's more board diversity and so on. On its surface, that sounds not terribly unreasonable. But, but in execution, it is not clear that this is going to be possible. First, uh, it is hard to monitor charitable and ideological projects. It's hard enough to figure out whether those who are investing money are actually realizing reasonable financial returns and to monitor them and make sure that they're not doing anything um, that is untoward when it comes to, um, to the investments, even when you have that clear metric of financial returns. But what if a planned fiduciary or a company director or officer is supposed to be not just making money for shareholders, not just making money for those who have invested in a mutual fund, but also delivering some kind of actual improvement in the environment, some actual um, achievement when it comes to social organization. At what point can anyone monitor that? That is something that the SEC is not, frankly, set up to do. And even courts are going to have a tough time with that. Chains of altruism are difficult because all you need is for one link in the chain to break, to break for the altruism, for the altruistic project to fail utterly. Markets, on the other hand, are robust. A chain of willing buyers and sellers can be nearly infinite because you are confident that every link in that chain, you know what they're doing. They're pursuing their own self-interest. When you try to have chains of altruism, I will donate to you or I will take a lower return on my investment portfolio as long as you, fiduciary, will also look out for some of these other factors. And so that, I think, becomes extremely difficult. In addition, there is the question of retirement assets. And to me, this is a uh, question that deserves a lot more attention than it has gotten so far. As a society, we have made judgments, which we can quibble about, concerning what assets retirement funds can be invested in. Now, you all will almost surely have 401ks, 403bs, and so on, right? You, at some point, if you don't already, uh, IRAs, and you are limited in what you can do with that money. You're thinking gold, crypto, ammunition? Okay, only up to a point, right? Most of the time, the, um, the retirement funds have to be invested in particular, um, particular um, pretty safe, pretty standard uh, vehicles. One thing that one is not permitted to do with one's retirement accounts is to pursue charitable or ideological projects. Now, maybe we have that wrong. Maybe as a society, we should be more flexible and allow for retirement money to be invested or simply spent on different things. Perhaps you should be able to donate some money to charity every year from your retirement account. I'm actually happy to entertain that possibility. But at least right now, the decision has been made that retirement assets, retirement accounts have to be invested in only a limited number of assets. And so bringing in environmental, social, and governance considerations, bringing in the possibility that investors will realize lower returns in order for there to be a successful pursuit of some kind of ESG aim, that I think doesn't map onto 
the present system of retirement accounts and their regulation. All right, I've talked for long enough, so I want to hear from all of you. So thank you. Thank you for coming, and thank you for listening, and I look forward to comments, um, questions, and so forth. Just exchanges. So thanks.